Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. From Ama to Iko Savana, Sobekne Fru Tunzinga, Nehanda to Ahebiuk Babe, the Kandakes of Meroe to Omu Okwes, and the daughters of Umuada of Iboland, female monarchs and merchant queens in Africa documents the worlds and life histories of elite African females, female principals, and women of privilege. It centers the diverse forms and systems of leadership as well as complexities of female power at the highest level in a multiplicity of distinct African societies. Welcome to the African Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Madina Cham, and today I'm very pleased to welcome on the program Dr. Wando Achebe, who is the Jack and Margaret Sweet Endowed Professor of History at Michigan State University. This promises to be a fantastic episode. Uh, we're going to talk about Dr. Achebe's latest book, uh, which just came out with the Ohio Short Histories of Africa series. And as you just heard in the excerpt that I read, the book is entitled Female Monarchs and Merchant Queens in Africa. Wando Achebe, thank you very much for joining us today on the program. We're very happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, it's an honor to be here. So can you begin by telling us a little bit more about your background and how and why you came to do this work? Yes, of course. So my name is Wanda Achebe, and um, I was born in Nigeria, Um, came to the United States when I was first came to the United States when I was two years old. This was shortly after the Nigerian Biafran Civil War. My parents were in exile, and uh, we lived in Amherst, Massachusetts, where my father, Chinua Achebe, was um, a distinguished professor at UMass Amherst. And my mother, uh, Christy Achebe, was completing her PhD in education at UMass Amherst. Um, when I was about six years old, we returned to Nigeria. And I lived in Nigeria from the time that I was six years old. So I started grade school in Nigeria, which we call primary school. And I was in Nigeria until um, just before college. I had graduated from secondary school. I had taken my JAM and YEC, West African Examination Council Board. Um, I had gained admission into the University of Nigeria in Sukkha to study theater arts. And it just so happened that that was the exact same time that my mother was going on her sabbatical and she was coming back to UMass Amherst. And as the last child of my parents, the only one who was actually still living at home with my parents, I just assumed they were going to leave me in Nigeria. I wanted to stay in Nigeria to do my uh, degree in theater arts, but um, my parents weren't having it. So that was... um, that was really the reason why I came back to the United States and uh, did my first degree in theater arts, music and dance at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, graduated, 
um, decided to take a gap year after graduation, um, wanted to do a degree in an MFA in acting and directing. And then I sort of decided that I didn't want to wait tables, right? Um, (laughs) And moreover, the programs out there were very specialized. You could either do an MFA in acting or an MFA in directing or an MFA in costume design. You couldn't combine it all, right? And so after a year, I just said, you know what? I'm going to sort of move things around a little bit, right? And I applied for MA programs, or rather two MA programs. This time I decided to do African documentary filmmaking. And this is how I came to, um, uh, what is it called, to um, start my master's at UCLA, in 1992, I gained admission to study film, African film, with the late Toshomi Gabriel, who so happened to be the only Africanist filmmaker at, at uh, UCLA. And what I didn't realize at the time was that he was on a year sabbatical. And my um, master's program was only a two-year program. It was a master's in African area studies. And so... I was kind of stuck, you know, wondering, okay, what do I do in this year that Tashami Gabriel is not around? And so that's when I decided, you know what, in order to be a good documentary filmmaker, I need to know the history of the people whom I'm going to make these documentaries on. And I had decided, you know, from the get-go that I wanted to do African documentaries. And so that's what led me to the class of Professor Boniface Obichere. Um, and, you know, I took, it was with much trepidation, I must say, that I entered into his class. And I say trepidation because as an undergrad, history was actually my least favorite subject. It was a subject where I caught up on letter writing. And, you know, I say that because I think that a lot of my undergraduate history teachers were just not very exciting. I was bored in history, <laughs> which is, you know, I, you know, right now as a, as a historian and a history teacher, I, I just even can't imagine history being boring. But Dr. Bonifacio Bichera opened up a world to me, a world in which I could recognize myself in the history, in the story he was telling. Here was, in my mind, an African griot standing in front of the class, and he was reciting the history of my people. And even though the class I was taking with him was a history of the Atlantic slave trade, I could still see myself in the lives of the people that he was he was talking to us about. And that was the beginning of my love affair with history. I just decided from that moment, it was so exciting to me that I started, you know, just sort of lapping up everything that he had to say. And I took all of his classes and then I started taking classes of other historians. And for me, it was about learning about the history of my people. 
in a very exciting way, in a way that empowered me as an African woman. And that's what led me to the PhD program in African history. And, you know, it was at UCLA that, um, you know, this historian that you see today, this historian that works on not just African women's history, but oral history was born because it was in the UCLA classroom, you know, studying for my PhD that we were again introduced to um, literature or rather history on Africans, right? A history that I really didn't recognize myself in the histories that we were being introduced to. I remember sitting in class, one of my historiography classes, and um, the professor um, having us read this article by Margaret Kinsman called Beast of Burden and the Subordination of Swan and Women. Uh-huh. And I remember it was um, Dr. Warger, who's, you know, one of my favorite people ever. Oh, um, he's one of my f- favorite people ever, too. <laughs> so it was in his class. His class is always so exciting, right? Um, and, I, you know, we teased him and said, you know, you were trying to push our buttons, weren't you? But anyway, he had us read this 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 article, right? And I so happened to be in a class that year where we had, I think we had about seven African-born students taking this class. And we were all so mad, like we were mad as can be, like fuming. And we were sort of like, who the heck is she calling beast of burden? Mm -hmm. I'm not a beast of burden. My mother was not a beast of burden. My grandmother was not a beast of burden. And we really got mad. But for me, I realized that getting mad did nothing. That the only thing that I could do was to write my own history. If I am upset about the images, if I am upset about the way in which people are interpreting, because that was another thing, is that we looked at the evidence that Margaret Kinsman used. And the evidence that she used, my interpretation of that evidence did not amount to swan and women being beast of burden. My interpretation, I mean, the evidence that she was using is that these swan and women carried their children on their backs and they went to farm. Which African woman doesn't carry their children on their backs and (laughs) and farm, right? And I remember having conversations in the class and we're like, wait a minute, all African women work. We've always worked. And yes, we carry our children on our back. But now medical science tells us that that body-to-body contact, right, is so important for the child. And that the farming, like when women, African women, carry their kids on their back and they go to farm with, with the hoes, and that that, just that back and forth, right? The tilling of the ground actually rocks the child to sleep, right? So medical science tells us that it's indeed a good thing, that body-to-body contact. So yeah, so in a nutshell, my anger was not only the way in which others were writing about African women, But also, I was troubled that the evidence that was used, that my interpretation of that same evidence was so different. And so I felt that the only way that I could contribute to this conversation was to write my own history, 
right, of African women and to try to present them and represent them in ways in which they represent themselves so that when they pick up my book or my books and they read about themselves, they can sort of sit back and say, yep, I get this. I know this woman. She was my mother. I know this woman. She was my aunt. I know this woman. She was my grandmother. So that's really, you know, a background of how I came to be at this moment, this Africanist um, oral historian, this gender historian who's dedicated my life to uncovering the voices of African women. You know, well, there was there was so much in there, and I I mean I would be remiss not to mention and give a quick shout out since you were mentioning that time period also in UCLA's history mm-hmm. um, to Ufahamu, the Journal of African yes. Studies that was that was yes. born there. Um, yes. And you mentioned all these scholars, uh, Tashome Gabriel and Bonifacio Bichere, and you know in the seventies, eighties, nineties, and up to today, because the journal still continues. You had just this, this energy that was around, you know, of yes. Of, um, Yes. African students and scholars really just producing all of that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're going to come back to it. We're, we're going to okay. come full circle at okay. the end of this interview because I really want you eventually to tell us what you've learned after all of this career uh, about knowledge <laughs> production. But yes. for now, let's let's get into the book since you were talking about, you know, wanting to write these books that your aunt, your mother African women would recognize themselves in. Yes. Uh, so let's just dive into the book that, that brings Wonderful. us here today, this female monarchs and merchant queens in Africa. Um, there's a lot in the book, so we'll just we'll just kind of like pick it apart. Uh, there okay. really is a lot, even though it's a short book. It's a little bitty book, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, so one of these things that, that from the beginning you kind of make very clear in the book um, is that you sort of distinguish between two political constituencies. It's a book about power. Yes. Um, and African women. And so you talk about the, the human political constituency, but also the spiritual political yes. constituency. What is that spiritual constituency? What did female spiritual power look like in various yes. African societies? Wonderful. Thanks for starting with that question. Um, you know, I think that one of my greatest contributions to the canon of African women's writing um, if I were to sort of assess my work, right? Which you should. Would be be the fact that I argue in all of my work that you cannot tell the entire history of a people, of Africans. You know, let's not talk about a people. Let's talk about Africa because that's what we're talking about, right? That you Mm -hmm. cannot tell the entire history of African people by focusing exclusively on the human realm. You just can't. To do that is to just tell one part of history. And why do I say this? I position myself as an African-born Africanist historian that tells the history of Africa from the African interior. So everything that I do is African-centered. It is not only African-centered, it is gender-centered. So what does an African-centered history look like? You can't begin to tell the history without an understanding of what the African world looks like. How is it that Africans conceptualize their world, right? And 
Africans believe in general, and again, we have to sort of generalize a lot of times when we we talk about Africans, right, that it's not just this one world in operation, right, that there are two worlds in operation. There's the spiritual world. It is the world that we can't see, right? But there's also the human world, the world of human beings, right? The spiritual world is such a much more powerful world. It is the world of spiritual forces, of deities, of God, the creator God. You know, a lot of my students don't, they are shocked when I start talking about God, right? The African God. And when I tell them, listen, if you believe in God, the God that you believe in is the God that Africans believe in, right? It's the same God, the creator God, right? But the way that we conceptualize the creator God might be different, right? So that spiritual world is a world of all of these spirits made up of God, who I argue is neither male or female, right? God is an entity. God is too big to behold. Therefore, God, in order for Africans to communicate with God, they have to communicate with God through God's helpers, who are the lesser gods and goddesses. And these lesser gods and goddesses are personifications of natural phenomena, right? You also have the oracles and the ancestors. And my argument, right, is that there are essentially these two different worlds, right, in the African system. That when you think about politics in the African system, there are also these two different political constituencies. There's the human and there's the spiritual, much like the African world. And my argument is that the spiritual political uh, constituency in African societies, pre-colonial African societies now, is much more powerful than the human political constituency. So you may ask, what is this a spiritual political constituency? It is a, the spiritual cons, uh, political constituency is made up of God, God's helpers, lesser gods and goddesses, is made up of the oracles, it's made up of the ancestors, is made up of all of those forces, those spiritual forces that make up the African spiritual world. And therefore, I argue that the real rulers of Africans, African pre-colonial societies and kingdoms and towns are the spirits and that human beings are merely there to interpret the will of the gods. So that's essentially my argument. And so in the book, The uh, Female uh, Monarchs and Merchant Queens in Africa, when I look at female power, I am not just looking at human beings. I am looking and historicizing the ways in which God, the genderless African God, the ways in which the gods, lesser gods and goddesses, the ways in which the priestesses, the prophetesses, um, the, the spirit mediums, the rain queens, the female medicines, uh, the female ancestors, what role did they all play in the day-to-day politics and governing of society? And I'm not just looking at what role did they play, but what role did the most powerful, 
of these entities, whether they be spiritual entities or human, what role did they uh, play the most powerful of these female entities? And to support this argument in the book, you, you bring up a wealth of examples from throughout the continent, and we cannot pick them all apart right now, but um, I was hoping you could dive into one of them that was really striking, I thought, uh, and it's that it's from Southern Africa, uh, and it's that of the Lovedu rain queens uh, among Sutu-speaking people. Tell yes. us a little bit more about these yes. rain queens, Wonderful. female spiritual monarchs. Yes, so um, Lovedu rain queens are... Um, they fit squarely into the spiritual political constituency, right? And one of the wonderful things about the Rain Queens is that I, I have them in my book and I spend some time on the Rain Queens because they are an unusual uh, group of, 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 of female entities, spiritual entities. And I say this unique in the African, um, in, 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 in African history in the sense that for the most part, my argument is that in Africa, there was this dual sex system in operation, or what I say, I also call it a complementary system. So, you know, when you really sort of think about Africa, everything almost is in twos, right? You have the spiritual and the human dual. You have male and female dual. When it comes to politics, there are these two uh, constituencies, right? The spiritual and the human. But within each of these uh, political constituencies, there are also two sides to it. This dual sex. In the human realm, you have men and women ruling society, whether they be uh, male kings and female queens, right, in centralized societies. In the small scale societies, you have male elders and female elders, right, being the rulers of these African towns. Now, the Lovadu are unique in the sense that they do not neatly fit into this dual sex system or this complementary com- system. Right. And the reason being that the Lovadu believe that long, long ago in their history, they had leadership of male kings. But we are told that these kings did not rule fairly. They were not fair in their in their leadership. Right. And the Lovadu kingdoms, you know, started to crumble. And because of that, a new system of leadership emerged, right? Where women became the sole rulers of this particular kingdom. And these women, even though they are born human, they are endowed with these spiritual idiosyncrasies, these spiritual powers, right? Because they are reign queens. They are part of a group of women whose ancestors, right, speak through them. Their ancestors, they embody the world of their ancestors. And these ancestors are embodied through various societies, 
right? And in this group, this area of, 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 of uh, you know, Southern Africa, you have these rain queens, right, who are embodiments of their ancestors. And in other areas, say in Zimbabwe, for instance, you have people who are uh, members of the Mon- Mohandoro spirit societies, like, you know, when you start thinking of mm-hmm. um, uh, um, uh, Nahanda, for instance, right? She was mm-hmm. part of the Mohandoro uh, uh, spirit societies. So yeah, so this um, group of women emerged and they are absolutely powerful because they are not considered human. They're divine leaders, they're divine rulers. And so they rule with the power, with all of the power, spiritual power of their, not only of God, but their uh, of their deities, right? And they're able to make rain. And there's a reason why they emerged at the time that they did, because in the history of Southern Africa, during that time period, there were lots of droughts. And so these rain queens emerged, right? Because they were able to speak to God and to the, uh, you know, uh, numerous deities. And they were able to create rain, not only for the Lovadu kingdom, but for kingdoms far removed from, you know, from this, from, from the Lovadu area. Wow. I, yeah, and something else that you that you document uh, that was very interested in, in is the the fluidity of gender and these gender categories yes, yes. in many societies, uh, and how ideas about sex and gender did not neatly map onto one another. Yes. Um, so why why is it important to understand these historical notions of gender as being fluid, in order to understand how power worked in a lot of African societies? It's extremely crucial. Again, it goes back to, you know, what I said in the beginning is that I really don't know how to tell African history from an outside perspective. I just, I really don't know how to, you know, to Mm -hmm. understand Africa is to understand these cultural nuances, right? So in African societies, biological sex and gender do not coincide, right? Gender is flexible and it's fluid, right? And I'll give you a number of examples. So you can be born female, right? You're biologically female, you're a girl, but you can be categorized as male. So your gender becomes male. You can be born biologically male and categorized as female. You know, this also expands to language, wherein many, most African languages are not gender specific, right? So in the English language or these European languages, you have the European languages are gender specific, right? You have he, she, etc. In most African languages, you don't have that. I'll give you an example, actually two examples. I, I want to give you an example from, you know, um, of, about the way that God is conceptualized and another example from my, um, from my people, the evil people. So um, the evil people, if you were to say um, you want to sort of refer to your brother, right? The term that you use for brother is the same term that you use for sister. 
brother is one, which translates into child of my mother. Sister is one, which also translates into child of my mother. So uh-huh. how is it that Africans do differentiate sex, right? Biological sex. It's, you know, they would ask another question. Okay, this is your one. What kind of one is this, you know, is this person? Uh-huh. And at that point, I'll say, the child of my mother, who is a boy. Or the child of my mother, who is a girl. Right. So that whole idea of gender being so fluid and flexible, allowing, you know, somebody who's born female to become male and be um, categorized as male with the male pronouns. Right. Or vice versa. You know, with God in the book, I argue, you know, I have a section where I talk about how the African God became a he. And it really has a lot to do again with the gender uh, uh, specific uh, uh, the the gender uh, specificity of these European languages that have the he she and all of that. If you were to go back in time and look at say, you know, the books of the that first generation of African writers, people like my father, for instance, Chinua Achebe, or Ngugi Wafiango, or um, um, who else should I name? Um, let, there let me are, just many, talk there about, are many. There are many, right? There are many. Let's just let's just you know talk about those two, right? You will find in 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 their earlier writing, right? Um, when they talked about God, for instance, they would talk about God as He, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, and that was because the English language does not have a way to express he, she. Yeah, that's all that language allows you to do. (laughs) So the English language really sort of, um, in essence, paralyzed, right, the the communication of concepts, uniquely African concepts in these European languages, right? Um, And so in my work, what I've tried to do is trouble that, you know, to say, really, is God actually he? You know, God is, God is a force, a force for most African societies that is balanced between maleness and femaleness. And when those two forces come together, they make a complete African God. And I gave in the book several examples about how these African societies actually conceptualize God, right? That has the male side and the female side for the most part, right? And so, yeah, so those are examples that just sort of talk to you or speak to you a little bit about the flexibility of gender, right? That biological sex is not the same as uh, you know, uh, uh, as gender. And this is why you have categories that I talk about in my book. You know, when I talk about female kings, for instance, female warrant chiefs, female headmen, female pharaohs, or you have male priestesses, right? Priestesses as opposed to priests, 
right? So it's that fluidity um, of, of the African gender system that allows all of this to happen. And, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is, you know, there's no tension. You know, there's no tension about this. You know, it's something that's understood. It's something that's accepted in society, that someone is born biologically male, but has become a woman. You know, I did research in uh, northern Igbo land around male priestesses, and I made the mistake of asking this male priestess who was in front of me, tied his wrapper like a woman does. I made the mistake of asking him, how did you become female? And he said, I didn't become, I am. I am, right? So he's biologically male, but gendered female. I, I want to talk a little bit about how, like, I guess, specific ways in which that operated uh, in mm-hmm. history. There's one uh, obvious um, and great example, um, and that's that's of Ahebiuk Babe. I'm saying yes. obvious because you dedicated a whole book <laughs> uh, to Ahebiuk Babe. So tell us about this female king of colonial Nigeria. Wonderful. Ahebiu Wabe is one of my favorite people. Like, you know, she's she's my shiro, right? <laughs> um, I really, you know, a, a person that comes from very, very um uh uh should I say a poor, poorish background. Um, you know, she okay, let me start from the beginning. So uh, this female king of colonial Nigeria, Ahebi Obabe. Ahebi Obabe was born in eastern Nigeria in um, a town called Umweda, Umweda in Enugwezike. Enugwezike was in uh, or is in northern Igbo land. And just, you know, for the, uh, our listeners who don't know very much about Nigeria, Nigeria is the most populous nation in Africa, one out of every, of every four. Africans is a Nigerian, one out of every six black people is a Nigerian. The Igbo people number over 30 million people. So it is one group of, of these uh, Igbo people that I was working on, and it's the northernness um, group of Igbo people. So this Ahebi Ubabe was born in Omweda towards uh, the end of um, the turn of the century. And um, she was born into uh, a family of her father was a farmer, um, mother, farmer, and a, a, a trader. And um, when she was little, we were told, or I was told, that she ran away. Um, She was about 13 years old when she ran away. And I remember asking the elders, you know, that told me her story, why did she run away? And, you know, they, you know, they weren't really able to answer that question. They would say, oh, she became a prostitute. And, you know, and I would say to them, she became a prostitute at 13. Is that the reason she ran away? Anyhow, to cut a long story short, I later discovered that she was, in fact, at the age of 13, given in marriage to a deity. Yes, in Africa, deities do marry 
human beings. So this whole, and it just, it's also a good example of why you don't just sort of focus on the human realm. So this is a young girl that was handed over in marriage to a goddess. And the name of this goddess was Ohe, right? And, you know, marriage in Igbo land among Igbo women, women always had the right to refuse a suitor. You can't force a woman into marriage, right? But in this case, Ahibi was being forced into marriage with a deity. And the marriage between human and deity is actually a form of slavery, indigenous slavery. It's a form of indigenous slavery in so much as the person who's married to um, uh, a deity cannot marry a freeborn. Once you've been dedicated in marriage to a deity, you can no longer fall in love with anybody and marry. You can have sex with men, but if you have sex with men, they become sperm donors. And whatever child or children you bear belong to the deity and bear that deity's name. So to to cut a long story short, Ahebi was not having it. She ran away. She ran away to a kingdom, kingdom of Igala. She, when she was there, she became a prostitute. She was a trader. She met up with the British. She met up with the Atta, who was the king of Igala. Uh, she stayed there for years. And then she was able to accompany the British back into northern Igbo land during their time of pacification, when they were actually, uh, uh, you know, conquering the area. So she's the one who showed them the routes through which to conquer her people. Because she did so, the British gave her the title of warrant chief. And in fact, Ahibu Mother was the only female warrant chief in all of British colonial Nigeria. Before I discovered her, the canon said that only men were warrant chiefs in British colonial Nigeria. And in fact, in the very few um, areas, um, documents in the archive where Ahebi Obabe's name came up, it always they always wrote Ahebi and then in parentheses, the letter F, female. To cut a long story short, you have she becomes a warrant chief, she becomes a headman, and then she decides that she wants to become a king in a society that have no kings. The Igbos have no kings. They have various proverbs that celebrate the fact that they do not like kings. They say, if you want to be a king, you can be a king in your own mother's backyard. Don't think you can Uh. lord it over us. No, the Igbo people don't believe in that. They believe in group leadership. But Ahebi was able to go back to Igala land, have the king of Igala make her king during a time when that king's power extended all the way to northern Igbo land. And so she's made king and she rides back on horseback, essentially challenging her people and saying, anyone who says I won't be king should go and have it out with the Atta, the king of Igala who made me king. Not only does she become king, so she's warrant chief, you know, she's assuming these positions that are all male, right? She's transforming herself into a man, become a warrant chief. She becomes king, not queen. And then last but not least, she decides, I'm going to do you one better. I am going to become an ancestor. I'm going to become an ancestor in the form of a masked spirit, right? A masked spirit. Now, in the West African tradition, Even when the masking 
a, a woman is depicted or a, a female is depicted in the masking, a woman can never become a masked spirit. That is that which differentiates biological females from males. It not only differentiates biological females from males, it also differentiates what I call full men, men that have participated in the masquerade ritual, right? Who are full men from men who haven't participated in the masquerade ritual. Those men are not considered full men. And so only full men can become masked spirits. And Ahebi decided to become one. And it was at that point that her society, the gerontocracy of male rulers in the society just said, this is way too much. That her rulership, her leadership had exceeded bounds. They were not going to have it. And so they seized her masquerade and the British government decided to side with the male elite against Ahebi Obabe. And so that's how, in a nutshell, she, all of her powers were stripped from her. This woman who was all-powerful king, Warren Chief, and now mass spirit was now a nobody, so much so that she was forced to bury herself while she was still alive because she did not believe that her people would accord her a befitting funeral. What a story. Yeah. Uh, and again, I want to remind all our listeners who haven't read the book already that, that, that she wrote a whole, a whole, um, you know, biography of this, this woman's life. I have Ubabe and I, it'll be really important to read the book in order to fully grasp um, yes. everything yes. that, that went in there and that, and in everything she did. Uh, but yeah, what a story. <laughs> what a story. Um, there's another group of, of women that you talk about, uh, that you write about, uh, in this new book. Um, and those are women traders of yes. West Africa. Yeah. There's these, uh, merchant queens, which perhaps some of the, some of the people who are listening might feel a bit more familiar with if you've grown up in various places in West yes, Africa. West Africa. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. You talk about, you know, in Nigeria and Ghana and in, in Togo and in, in Benin. In um, mm-hmm. And you show about how, like, in the 19th century up to today, some of these women uh, not only amassed considerable wealth and economic power, uh, but also acquired political influence as a result. Yes. So, who are yeah. these merchant queens? Wow. Merchant queens, there are several types of merchant queens, depending on where you are. So you're right to uh, say that um, the merchant queen um, chapter was really solely on West Africa because, you know, a lot of these West African women are known as not only local traders, but also long distance traders, right? And these merchant queens will definitely fit into the categorization of these long distance traders. Who are there? There There's several types of merchant queens. And merchant queens 
typically focused in on one kind of commodity. So for instance, in Ghana, you had merchant queens who focused on, say, plantain. So they became plantain mothers. Or you had merchant queens that focused in on the selling of yam. Or you had in Bene Republic, in, 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 in some um, you know, uh, areas of Francophone, West Africa, Senegal, uh, uh, Mali, you had these merchant queens that focused in on textiles, right? They were textile queens. They were the Mama and Nana Benzes, right? They accumulated so much. Remember, this book is about, you know, you're talking about the women, the most powerful of the powerful of African women. So these are the women who accumulated so much money, right? They are called Mama Benzes because in those days, they were the ones who had the Benzes. Like they had so many of these Benzes. You look at the uh, country, Bene Republic, where, um, you know, the president at one point in the 60s was... um, you know, had this international convention and they ran out the, the state, the country ran out of Benzes to, to uh, 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 you know, uh, to shuttle these dignitaries from point A to point B. What did the president do? He turned to the Mama Benzes because they had an association of Mama Benzes to ask for 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 loner benzes to uh to to transport these these presidents and ministers and dignitaries so they had so they accumulated so much money in trading in in textiles both African type textiles, but they also sort of, you know, there was an evolution from trading in African type textiles to trading in more European, these Dutch waxes, right? Um, So a lot of them traded in Dutch wax. Some of them also traded in Chinese waxes and created unique African type waxes, you know, with very, very colorful uh, uh, designs that you will see women, you know, dressing in all over West Africa, whether they're wearing this in boo-boos or, or tying wrappers or what have you. But these are women that accumulated so much wealth by becoming uh, not only traders, but removing the middleman from the equation and doing this not only local trade, national trade within their countries, but also international trade. Outside their countries, within Africa, trading um, between their countries in Africa and Europe and elsewhere. Wow. Um, Yeah, no, and as I was saying, I think if Again, if, for people who are familiar or grew up in West Africa, I mean, I grew up in Mali, like in, mm-hmm. in urban environments, you certainly immediately picture the type of women you're talking about, yes, right? Because yes. you, you just see them around and, and there are many of them. Um, there's a lot more that you, that you discuss in the book and I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, you know, for people who haven't <laughs> read it. I think there's many more examples you bring. Um, and again, people should just pick up the book. It's, it's concise, but there's so much, uh, uh, density and texture that you bring to this, um, involving examples from all over the continent. Yes. Uh, so really, I encourage people to go and and read the book. And what I want to do now, I guess, is come back 
kind of uh, full circle, um, okay. going back to the question I was asking you about at the beginning. So you explained to us how um, how we missed out on Wando Achebe, the actress, uh, and we got <laughs> Wando Achebe, the historian. Oh, dear. And so, <laughs> another <laughs> life. <laughs> another life, indeed. Um, no, for sure. And you, and you tell us in the book how, you know, in, in a lot of African cosmologies, everything is cyclical. So maybe, yes. you know, maybe the actress, the actress life will come up. <laughs> like, come out. Eventually. Um, but no, I was, I was wondering. So, you, yeah, you, you told us about the beginning, right? And that training at UCLA and how things changed and um, the type of work that you set out to do. And then yeah. there's a whole career that ensued. Obviously, um, you know, you've, you've completed six book projects by now, mm -hmm. uh, two books on women in, in colonial Nigeria. Uh, you wrote a textbook for, for West African uh, school kids mm -hmm. uh, on West African history. Um, You've co-edited volumes on, you know, the historiography of Africa, um, um, you know, uh, co-edited a volume also on African women and this last book uh, that we're discussing today. Yes. Um, you've also founding, founding editor-in-chief of the, the Journal of West African History. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering with, with all of this now, I was hoping you could, uh, you know, turn back and share a little bit with us some of your reflections about what has all of this taught you? Mm. about knowledge production in African history and yeah. also how you've seen the field evolve or not evolve. Mm. Just, yeah, share with us a little bit, you know, uh, at yeah. this point in your career, Thank you. what have you learned yourself? Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, I start the preface of my new book with, you know, po pondering how, African, African history really is, you know, Terrence Rangers, um, you know, uh, pondering of how uh, African, African history truly is. And, you know, I, I, I ask the question of whose histories, whose stories, whose archives, right? And I end with these are our histories, our stories, our archives, And the reason I want to, you know, begin to answer or try to answer your question, because it's that's a very difficult question, right, in this way, is that everything that has guided who I am, you know, what I've chosen to write, the way I have chosen to write has been, um, um, has been guided by, by this, right? Whose stories, whose histories, whose archives? Um, You know, I, I shared with you that story of my grad student days and how upset I was about the depiction of African women in, 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 in textbooks and in, in, in articles, you know, and we've come full so uh, circle, right? And, you know, here I am, you know, I, I you know, I have, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, a number of books, articles and, and, and all of that. But, you know, I'm still, I, I still worry about the production of knowledge, you know, whose stories are we telling, you know, what interpretation of this history are we telling? You know, for me, it's very clear to me who my primary audience is. And therefore, you know, when what I have chosen to do in my career, the way I have chosen to write, I think that one of the things that most people that pick up my books um, will, will say is that I write in a very accessible manner. I write in a very accessible manner because my chosen audience, first and foremost, is an African audience. 
that's my first and foremost our audience, right? It's the people that 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 shared their lives and their stories um, with me, right? Um, but I have other audiences. So my primary audience is, you know, these African um, women, men, children, you know, that share their stories. Um, but following close in suit is the African diaspora, right? It's again, it goes back to my wanting to see myself in history. History can empower. History History is not, you know, during my father's time, he talked about the fact that literature was not innocent. And I'll use that same terminology and say that history is not innocent or the ways mm-hmm. in which we interpret history is not, you know, is not innocent. And, you know, a case in point really is that, um, that, 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 that story I told you about grad school, how you can use one set of evidence, right? And the interpretation is so dif- uh, so different depending on who is doing the interpretation. So if you were to fast forward to today and you look at knowledge and the ownership of African knowledge, and I'll talk about the U.S., for the most part, Africanist knowledge is owned in the U.S. by non-Africans, period. Whether yeah. you are talking about, okay, let's look at this. Who are the people that are the editors of book series? The top editors of book series. Can we name one African-born historian that is a top editor of a book series on Africa? I think not. Can we name how many African-born editors of journals? This is why I agreed to found and established the Journal of West African History, because I wanted there to be an avenue which will publish, hopefully publish, many, many, many more West African-based voices. I had heard from a lot of West African scholars how when they send articles to, you know, the mainstream journals, they're just, you know, turned down just like that. And, you know, again, I'm not saying that, you know, the Journal of West African History is not publishing subpar uh, 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 work. We're publishing superb work, right? But we also understand the fact that sometimes we have to work with our African-born, you know, authors to take, you know, what is an amazing idea to the next level. As you know, in a lot of our universities, you know, uh, the university uh, system has crumbled, right? And so a lot of African universities and students are not exposed to the, 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 the knowledge base, the libraries that we have, right? So what have we done in the Journal of West African History? We've created a mentorship program wherein a West African-born, based author sends us a journal which is really quite good, but we know that if we send it out for double-blind review, it probably is not going to see the light of day. So what do we do? We pair that West African scholar with someone, a senior scholar, who can share his or her her knowledge base in terms of, you know, articles, books, and all of that, and work one-on-one with that scholar to bring that article up to where it needs to be to be sent out for double blind review. So everything that I have done in terms of the choices that I have made has been about knowledge production, has been about, you know, looking for or creating avenues for 
people who look at Africa from an African-centered perspective, to have avenues to tell our own stories, to tell our own histories, to make our own interpretations of the archive. And that's essentially, you know, what I have I have tried to do in my career. You talked about the co-written um, West African history textbook. I agreed to do that at, at a time where I really shouldn't have agreed to do anything because I was so busy. But it was so important to me to be part of a team that wrote a book for youngsters in West Africa that was free of charge, where we they could for the first time for most of them, read an African-centered interpretation of these histories, as opposed to some of these books that they're still reading that were written in the 50s that a lot of these students are still using. So it was important to me to be part of a group of scholars that do this. It was my giving back to a community to the, you know to a community of west african youngsters so that they too can pick up this history book see themselves in the history in their history and be empowered by their histories yeah and i'll, I'll make sure to put a link um, um, on social media and in twitter to that to that textbook resource that you just talked about because it is so important um and i remember when i when i first encountered it recently i i was you know i thought well i wish i had had access to something like this also because i you know i grew up in francophone west africa yes yes and so geographically it's close but in terms of maybe the things that we might read about or learn about like the knowledge has been shaped so differently that yes. I wish I could have had an opportunity to see that, to see that it's also, you know, it's all about who writes what. Like, you yes. know, it's not just like history is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, it's such an important resource uh, and it's available online. So again, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll make sure to share the link. I, I mean, I mean, uh, I always go back to that proverb, you know, until lions have their own historians, the story of the hunt will always favor you know, the, 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 um, the hunter, right. As opposed to the hunted. So we, you know, we have, you know, uh, uh, proverbs that sort of explain this, this who owns knowledge, you know, that you're trying to, to, that you were, you know, asking about. So yes, until more of us, until we, we train and it doesn't have to, they don't, we don't necessarily have to be from Africa. It is the training of people to look at African history from the inside. You know, this is one of the reasons why I was so happy to to move to Michigan State University because I had the opportunity to train a new generation of historians, right? PhDs. And, you know, I'm I'm proud to to say that. And I call them them all my sons and daughters. They're my children, you know, two of whom are associate professors, you know, in, in, in universities in the U.S. Actually, three are associate professors. One wow. is, um, you know, a professor in, in China. Uh, you know, so it's, it, yeah, it's, to me, you know, they work with me because the, the, the way that I train them is to write African history from the interior. I know not how to train, you know, students to do it any other way. You know, if you're coming to work with me, you know my work, that's what we're going to be doing. 
And so, yeah. So it's, again, it's the training of students to, to, to think about African worlds, African history, African cultures in African centered ways, right. As opposed to looking in. So, Wonder Achebe, what's what's next? Um, not to say that you haven't done enough already, because I think you just laid it out. <laughs> but I was I was wondering if uh, you know what big what's or next? small projects might be in the works right now, uh, yeah. and it's fine if it's also just resting. I think. Yeah, I would. You know, I should I should choose resting, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm actually <laughs> working with a team of amazing scholars, and we are putting together. Uh, a repository of uh, histories uh, surrounding the Nigerian Biafran Civil War. Mm. Um, and um, it's just, it's been an amazing experience thus far. What it is that we're doing is we want to, we want this to be the place that anybody that wants to learn about Nigeria, that wants to learn about the Civil War comes to. So we're collecting life histories, we're collecting letters, poetry, uh, memorabilia, just everything about the war. And like I said, I'm working with scholars and colleagues at uh, Michigan State University, working in conjunction with our digital history um, partners, Matrix. And so that's, yeah, that's what, that's what I'm working on right now. Well, well, look forward to being able to, you know, access this and, and learning <laughs> from this. Uh, and it's yet another, like, that's really cool that it's yet another form, you know, of knowledge production. Yes. Um, this time that's addressed to a big audience. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's, in, that's in really their, neat. In their own words. Again, you know, you see there's a, a theme that sort of, you know, joins everything, connects everything that I do. So, yeah, in their own words. Wow, in their own words. Well, yeah. uh, to everyone again, this was Dr. Wando Achebe, who was presenting her brand new book, um, Female Monarch and Mer Merchant Queens in Africa, which was just published by Ohio University Press uh, as part of the Ohio Short Histories of Africa. It's a great book. It's accessible, as she said herself. Uh, it's also affordable, which is great. Yeah, um, that's and, great. You know, it's, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it would be a good tool for teaching for teachers in the classroom, but also just a great book for anyone to read and learn more about a lot of developments throughout the continent. Um, and it has, it has a gorgeous cover. I should oh, really mention it. I know. Several of us have been talking about it on Twitter yeah. already, but yeah, this, it's cover is actually beautiful. Um, so gorgeous. all over just like a great resource and I hope many people would pick it up. Thank you again, everyone, for listening to us today. And thank you very much, Dr. Wando Achebe, for joining us today. It was really a delightful conversation. Thank you, Medina, for having me. I, I am just so thrilled to have been able to do this with you. Thank you. <laughs>